all right. So they put me up here again. I thought I ensured that would never happen the next to last time. But um, I'm pumped to be with you guys and continue this series on the 66 love letters. Um, we're going through the entire Bible. And it's been so cool. If you have, are not caught up or have not watched this from the beginning, everything's online. And it's a beautiful thing to see how God's story is lining up. Um, and it's, it's been very awesome through the study and as we have a, as a staff have um, studied this. So today we're going to talk about the Psalms. So as many of you know, um, Lisa and I, we met when she was 15 and I was 17. We're only about a year and a half apart, if that was creepy to any of you, that a 17-year-old is dating a 15-year-old. Sorry. It freaks me all out because my daughter's 14. So I'm like, hey, that, never tell that story. But now it's on the internet, so here we go. Um, so we dated. We were high school sweethearts. We got married shortly after that. But part of our practice in dating was during school, because we were um, in different grades, uh, we would pass notes between classes. Raise your hand if you participated in note passing. Okay, right? Right? So I asked my daughter if that still happens because, you know, with technology, I figured there was no way, right? So much easier in your phone to just... And she said, no, they, they still do it, especially if a teacher's boring. We'll pa- pass notes. And uh, so I was, like, I was very interested in that, um, Because for us, for our relationship, this was part of the way we worked out how to love each other and how we expressed ourselves to each other. Now, granted, she wrote a lot more notes than I did. It was probably one to ten. And uh, that was okay. But she passed me a lot of notes. By the time we got married, I probably had three shoeboxes full of notes that were folded up like crazy origami and all this stuff. Um, this was us working it out. We had our pain in there, what was troubling us through all this stuff, just our affection for one another. And so as soon as we had kids, we burned all of them so they would never read them. Okay, so I submit to you that the Psalms is just like this. Okay, this is a whole bunch of authors writing to a God trying to figure it out trying to struggle well, passing him a note, theoretically, but writing these things down to say, I want to learn how to love you well, God. This reminds us of Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. So what we see in the Psalms is that our God is about relationship. The Psalms is a Um, beautiful piece of evidence that says that this is true. It's not about religion. It's about relationship. And God's people desiring to understand who God is while battling their own selfishness, their own desire to win, their own desire to be right, and at the same time honoring him as God and that he is in control. So the Psalms are a collection of prayers, poems, and songs And they move all over the place from the human spectrum of emotion. They'll go from total praise and affection and remembrance of God to total complaining, heartbreak, and sadness. The Psalms give us words when we might not have them. I don't know if you've ever read uh, letters written by Civil War soldiers home. It's like some of the most beautiful writing you've ever heard. And you quickly realize, I don't speak good. 
you know? The Psalms kind of can fulfill this for us. You can find a Psalm, you're laughing because you're like, yeah, you're right, you don't. Um, (laughs) The Psalms can give us words when we don't quite have them. And sometimes it allows us to pray things that we're a little uncomfortable in our spirit to pray. We'll get into some of that. But they get this glimpse at God's people struggling well inside their life to try to honor the Lord. And we say that here often. We want to see you struggle well. The Psalms, just to be clear, it would be impossible for us to go over all of the Psalms. Um, This is a lot of material. But what you see in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, we see two things covered that are repeatedly covered inside the Psalms. Psalm 1, a devotion to the Torah, a calling to follow the law that God has put out, these protections that will show you as an example to the heart of God, to the people around you. And in Psalm 2, the looking towards the Messiah, the seeing the coming Jesus, although not calling him that. And so sometimes it's going to require a little study to understand that's where they're going. But the Psalms are filled with prophetic words of the coming king. Jesus himself, after he's resurrected from the dead, shows up to the disciples and they're freaked out. They think it's a ghost. And Jesus says, whoa, you knew this was going to happen. He says, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. You could study a year just on the prophetic utterances of the Messiah inside the Psalms. So it's important for us to look at the Psalms, one, to learn to struggle well, to see God's plan playing out. So we're going to dive in a little bit with just a little bit of fun inside your, on your uh, bulletin. There's a little pop quiz of Psalms trivia. Are you ready? Number one's kind of easy. If you have a Bible on you, you can answer this real fast. How many Psalms make up the book of Psalms? Anybody? Anybody? 150, okay, beautiful. I kind of heard it over here, but I thought it might be my wife, and so she'd be cheating. She knows the answers. What does the word psalms mean? Praises, that's right. Sounds like songs, right? But it's psalms encompassing this act of praise. Prayer and these poems and writings and songs themselves. How many psalms were written by David? Of the 150... 73 were written by David. And if you came to the first service, you also would know that answer. Um, <laughs> just, just kidding, right? We, we credit David with so many of the Psalms. And, and granted, he wrote a lot. He was a musician and a singer. You know, I mean, he spent a lot of time writing and we collaborated so many inside, but about half, okay? Who wrote the earliest Psalm? Josh Lee, you can't answer. Who wrote the earliest Psalm? In 1400 BC, approximately. Moses, beautiful, okay? Moses wrote Psalm 90. So you can see we didn't put these in order, okay? He wrote the earliest Psalm, but we're going to throw you, you know, almost towards the back, right? Inside of Psalm 90, you hear these words. You know a lot of this Psalm. 
um, in verse 12, he says, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And what that means, what Moses is saying is, Lord, help me understand that my time on this earth is limited. And God, you are eternity. You are the only thing worth living for. And I'm battling my own selfishness and wanting to do things the way I want to do them, but ultimately my life is a vapor and you are forever. Ironic words coming from a guy who lived to be 120, but he's saying, I must keep in line what is most important. And that is the struggle that we see inside of so many of the Psalms written. This keeping God first inside of the chaos. So huge biblical names, right? David, Moses, a couple other big, big biblical names, big, 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 large biblical names, people we would um, say drove so much of the Bible, wrote some of these psalms, but 49 are written anonymously by somebody like you or me trying to figure it out, trying to work out who God is and trying to um, struggle well inside of a world just a world of chaos. So the Psalms are offered to teach God's people the lifelong practice of prayer and praise. Unless you've read the book from beginning to end, like you started at one and you went to 150, you might not notice, but it's actually separated into five books. Each one of these books ends with a verse that says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Sort of putting this stamp at the end of this thing of confusion and all this stuff, redirecting us back to say, he is what we're about. This is what's important. Let's refocus our thought process. So theologians separate Psalms into a whole bunch of categories. And I'm good with that. There's lots of different kinds. But for our purposes today, I'm going to separate them into two. Um, lament psalms and praise. Every psalm really can be placed into one of these. Um, lament psalms are going to be prayers and songs of pain and confusion about what's going on in the world. And sometimes why God's not doing anything about it or asking him to do something about it. Um, and these are important for us as people who want to grow in the Lord because it shows us that lament is a proper response to what we see is wrong in the world. If God is about relationship, he would also be about you being honest about how you feel about things because honestly, he already knows anyway. So posturing or posing about your specific um, pain in a situation uh, maybe just leads to your own stress and not to a growing relationship with the Father. Um, this, also, this lament recognizes that God is in control. When you say, why don't you fix this, God? I don't get it. You're saying, I know you can. And so the ability to say, your timing might not be like mine, but God, I want it done right now. God's a God of communication. This gives us a freedom to interact with him at a deeper level. So Psalm 22 is a Psalm of David, and this is a great example of a lament Psalm. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. I mean, it sounds like 
Jesus at the top, right? And all this stuff. God, have you just forgotten me? Think about David. Think about the life of David. All the times God showed himself powerful through there. And he comes to this moment and in his own heart, he's saying, maybe you just forgot or maybe you're done with me. And so when you read something like that, I think it's almost necessary for you to take a breath after that second line because otherwise it would feel bipolar to continue on. It would feel like he just shifted. But you got to understand that when you're writing and you're feeling what's happening or you're just speaking these things out, there's humanity in it. So you take this breath and he says, yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and you delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Reminding himself, saying you are the trustworthy God. And inside of my pain, I can submit in reverence and and really know who you are even though I'm hurting so badly. These are the lament psalms. The other side would be praise. Much more familiar. A lot of what we sing up here would be considered psalms of praise. Their joy and celebration, retelling what God has done and giving him credit for what he is doing. They proclaim his characteristics that make him praiseworthy. His faithfulness, that he is merciful, that he is loving, that he is powerful. So, In this separation of these five books inside of Psalms, the lament Psalms dominate the first three books. There's praise Psalms intermingled inside of there, but there's a lot of pain and struggle. And in the last two books, the praise Psalms outweigh the lament Psalms. And then in the last five books, we see, or I'm sorry, the last five Psalms, they start and end with the word hallelujah. Hallelujah is a word we sing in here all the time, so you should probably know what it means, okay? It comes from two words, halle meaning praise, and yah meaning Yahweh, give praise to God. And in the, as we wrap the Psalms, you see these um, prayers and these praises that conclude this book saying it's all about him. Let's give him praise. He is worthy. So as we look and we see that God, we look at the Psalms and it's clear, God is about relationship. And that he desires to be with you, his children, and to answer you. So what challenge do we pull out of this? For me, it resounds, do I struggle this well? Do I come to the Lord as often as I should? Do I wrestle over things that I think are unjust? How can I deepen my relationship so that I too can be a psalmist in my own right between me and the Father? So are we struggling with God? So I have a friend who's a piano player. Um, He's not by trade, he just has played piano his whole life. He, he's a good piano player, um, like classically trained and um, does other things for a living. But he's in this piano bar one night with his wife and 
two friends, and this guy's playing stuff, and my buddy's listening, and the guy's incredible, and my buddy's just rattling off the titles to these songs. He's going, oh, that's Bach, and that's Beethoven, that's Chopin, and he's doing it loud enough. Um, he's kind of loud, but I don't think on purpose. He's doing it loud enough to where the piano player hears him, and is kind of impressed, like, this guy knows everything that I'm playing. And so when the piano player takes a break, he walks over and says, hey, do you play? I heard that you know all this. And my buddy says, I do play, but man, I wish I could play like you. And the guy's response was, no, you don't. Feel snarky to that. <laughs> no, you don't. Because if you did, you wouldn't just say, I wish I could play. You'd put in the work to actually be able to do it. Don't just say, oh, I wish I could do that. And then hope that maybe you can. I might have been born with some piano giftings, but I sat there at that piano for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours when other people were sleeping and watching movies so I could do what I can do. So there's this principle um, in a Malcolm Gladwell book called Outliers. It says it takes about 10,000 hours to be an expert at something. He broken down everything from like, he studied the Beatles to, I mean, all these people who, not just musicians, I think the Beatles are the only musicians, people at the top of their fields, and they say 10,000 hours, no way around it. And this is what this guy was getting to. Maybe not the gentlest way, but he was getting to it. And so something we say here is you have as much of God as you want. And so when I look at these guys who are wrestling with God, they were never going to be the type who prayed a prayer and said, oh, good, now I'm saved. Sweet. 30 Sundays a year, I'll be at church. 25, maybe, you know. And I'll check off those boxes and we'll be good. They were striving after the heart of God because they knew he had something better, even when it was painful and it hurt. So the Psalms is a call to us as we read it overarching, okay? Because we could dive into any of these for several Sundays. It's a call for us to be better at prayer, to be seeking God in prayer, to be journaling our thoughts, our prayers, and what God is showing us, and to deepen our sense of worship. So let's talk about prayer for a moment. Why don't we pray? I know some of you say, I do pray, okay? Some of this will be for you if you pray all the time, okay? But as a society, as an American Christian, uh, we don't lift prayer as high as we should. And one of my least favorite phrases that you hear, on, like when tragedy happens on the news or you hear people in just regular interaction is they'll say, oh, my thoughts and prayers are with them. I feel like that is a loophole <laughs> for me to say, well, I thought about it. I thought, man, that's tragic. But I know, rarely am I going home and getting on my knees after I make a statement like that. Or grab somebody, um, my buddy Schmack called me this week on my way to the beach, and I said, let's pray for this right now. Right? So we uh, started interacting in prayer right then instead of saying, like, you know what, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Let's pray for one another. I don't know why we become so apathetic about it. Maybe we think it doesn't do anything. Maybe we think God doesn't care. Or maybe we think he's going to do what he's going to do anyway, and so I'm not sure that it matters. But biblically, 
There's a ton of examples of God's people praying into a situation and him shifting that situation. So, you want, to, you want to see examples of prayer answered, okay, in your life, not just biblically? Uh, hear the story of Nora, Rick and Kara's baby, okay? This is happening in and around you, and it's fervent prayer, sweaty, crying, hurting prayer over things. And God answers it in his time. And we look at a story like Nora who we thought things were going to be wrong with, and we prayed into it and prayed for her healing, and God answered those, and it was miraculous. So, yeah, amen. let's applaud the Lord. A friend, a friend of mine was an atheist drummer playing at a church in Scotland. They paid him some money to be there every week. That was the only reason he was there. And the pastor said to him, you don't believe anything that we're talking about here, do you? And he said, no, sir, I do not. And he said, okay, I dare you to pray, Lord, reveal yourself to me. If you're real, show me you're real. And the pastor said, what do you have to lose? If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. He's driving down the interstate shortly after praying this. This is a big old, like, brave heart looking Scottish dude, right? Driving down the road. He hears this voice say to him, Rory, slow down. And he's freaked, right? He's like, hmm? And because God is gracious, God says again, Rory, slow down. He instinctually puts his foot on the brake going down the interstate, and a bus goes right in front of him and barely misses him. Now he's going, okay, what's going on here? Right? Right? The next several days, God is just haunting him in his dreams and pursuing him. And right now, my buddy's a missionary in Scotland. Okay? Our relationship with God in prayer is so vital. Don't neglect it. Maybe we have a lack of compassion for the people around us. That's why we treat it so flippantly. If that is your case, you need to pray for that compassion. Okay. To pray well, you must be present in the moment. And we live in maybe the most difficult time to do that in history. You have a computer in your pocket that keeps you at work 24 hours a day. And a social media, because good Lord, you got to know what's happening with everyone. And when you feel that phone go off in your pocket and you say, I wonder if someone liked my tweet, you are no longer present in what's happening right now. You have to be present with the Lord in seeing what he's doing in and around you. And as these things steal your mind, it's stealing your prayer life. You got to pray in your own words. When you read, my God, my God, have you forsaken me? There's nothing religious about that or some it feels religious to us because we've heard it but for him in that moment it was pure heartache and pain and we have to pray with our actual words and lay it out tim um, has told me so many stories of guys who've lived crazy hell-raising lives and they'll be sitting in his office 
and they'll finally surrender, and he'll say, hey, I'm not going to tell you what to pray. You pray it. And these guys will lay out these beautiful prayers, sometimes cussing, because this is the life they've lived. But it's beautiful because it's honest. And they come and say, God, I know I don't deserve your love. I know who I am. But you, Lord, you've made a way. And so if you'll accept me, I surrender it all to you. We got to learn to be quiet. Hebrews 2.20. But the Lord, I said Hebrews, it's Habakkuk or Habakkuk or however you want to say that. 2.20 says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. See, this is what awe does. It causes silence when you stand before a holy God. And you will not hear from the Lord if you don't stop talking. Learn to be quiet long enough to hear his voice. He's longing to speak to you. I want you to take just a moment and I want you to look around this room. Look at people, not me. Look at anyone else in this room. Some people you know, some people you don't. And I just want you to say in your soul, God, you care for that person as much as you care for me. You know how hard it becomes to judge somebody when you say that? I just got back from the beach yesterday and I'd get there and I'd be like, oh gosh, don't let my girl see that girl in that bathing suit or don't, all these things. And I'd say like, no, Lord, remind me, you care for each one of these people as much as you care for me and as much as you care for the kids. And if we will change radically the culture of the Cross Loganville end of your life, if when you come in here, you stop thinking so much about what you get out of this service, and you start praying it into other people. God, meet them where they are. God, you know them as well as you know me. God, meet them. God, heal them. Lord, show yourself to them. If we do that for each other, we will experience radical revival here. Let's commit to each other. That we won't walk out and say, I didn't get much out of that. Or, I didn't know that song. It's not about you. <laughs> okay? We come together here. Let's lift each other up. Let's press into God together. Let's struggle together. Okay? So all of these psalms were written down. And so we have to ask ourselves, why was it important for them to be written down, one for the person who's writing them, and also for us who is reading it later. This is the hardest thing for me to describe to you, because I really just lack the words, because one I said I don't use words good, but there's something different about writing something down. 
There's something that happens as I write down my prayers or what God is showing me, something that allows me to move forward past it sometimes. This happens to songwriters often. They'll write a song, they're crafting it for so long, and then they record it, and then they go, let's move forward, okay? Similar, inside of us writing these ideas down, it allows us to move past some of the things that are, are, we're wrestling with. But also what it does is it gives us a document record of what we've been asking God to do, and we are so short-term in our relationship, and we want things right now, that if we don't write it down, we might not even give God the glory for him answering something because we forgot we prayed it. We forgot we asked him to move in this area, but when I can go back and show it and say, look at this, God receives the glory. So a buddy of mine in Tim's, actually one of the guys who connected us initially several years ago, um, he had this dream that this church called him and said, we'd like you to come be your senior pa- our senior pastor. And he woke up and was like, that's interesting. So he starts writing out his thoughts about this, you know, that this is what I've prayed. What would that look like? God, are you calling me to this? He's wrestling over it, okay? Nine months later, nine months, this church calls him from a different state and says, hey, we'd like you to interview for this position. He goes, hang on. Goes and gets his journal and says, I need to read this to you. Calls out the date. I dreamt that you called and asked me for this. Without documentation, you kind of maybe get puffed up and be like, well, of course you want me to be there. I'm great. (laughs) Instead, he gets to write down and say, like, all the glory goes to the Father who is orchestrating things that I, I can't do. Journaling can be hard. I get it. And some of you, even when I say it, you're like, journaling? Come on. I got to keep a diary. So there's this book uh, that I read several years ago called Samson and the Pirate Monks. And um, it's a, a book for men about uh, struggles some guys have. So ladies, you don't need to read it. But there is a little piece inside that book about journaling that helped me tremendously. He describes his own efforts in journaling. He said, I buy this big leather, beautiful journal and some expensive pen. And for like three days, I'd be awesome. I mean, I'm writing some really good stuff here. And then I'd be done. I just like, that's it. That's all I got. You know? And his guy who was counseling him through all this said, go buy a 50 cent spiral bound notebook and steal a pen from church (laughs) and take it home. And just start writing, fill the pages until you got no more words. And it became such a therapeutic thing, such a big part of his healing because he wasn't performing even in his writing. And let's face it, this world asks us to perform constantly. Let me dress right, let me show right, let everybody think the right things of me. And it would even transfer into my prayer life and journaling life. This rough And this guy had to get over all of that. I think I made up the steal the pen thing. I just felt like that worked. But I don't think that's in the book if you read it later. Journaling. I I highly recommend it. It's been very freeing for me. um, And I think you would grab so much out of it. And you can't talk about the Psalms without talking about worship. And Worship is a response to who God is and what he is doing. It is when your soul 
interacts with the Holy Spirit. It is you focusing your affection and attention on who God is. Old Testament, how we would worship, how we would get clean, is we'd bring a sacrifice, our best bull or goat. But New Testament, they ask us to bring a sacrifice of praise. Our words, our affection, we sacrifice our authority over our lives and surrender it once again to the Lord. In Psalm 46.10, we see this played out, even though it's played in tons of the Psalms. It says, cease striving and know that I am God, or be still and know that I am God. But what it's actually saying is, stop being God and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Worship is this posture of your heart, this daily surrender. That's why we did a series called 11,000 Days. It was Tim's testimony going through because every day is a required surrender in our pursuit of who God is. Our spirit engaging with the Holy Spirit, giving him our attention and our affection. There's also this very physical side of worship that was understand, understood uh, among Hebrews. Uh, the root word for thanksgiving in Hebrew is to extend your hands. You see people lifting their hands. That might make you uncomfortable. Maybe you should try it. God can meet you inside of that uncomfortableness. What if people look at me? Uh, it's not about them or you. It's about giving thanksgiving to the Lord. Okay? The root word for bless is to kneel. So when we say in Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. We're saying kneel before the Lord. All my intentions, I kneel before him as my ultimate authority. And the root word of worship in Hebrew is to lay prostrate. Lay face down on the ground. Some of this is soul posturing, but some of it needs to be physical for some of us. In a response to a holy God who's pouring out his affection amongst you and you become overwhelmed, you might be called to lay on your face or to kneel or to raise your hand. This is a biblical response to who God is in something that he's calling us to, in something that was understood before the modern church. So we want to deepen our worship experience as a community and as an individual. So there's some things we can do to do that. Number one, practice the presence of God. This was a tiny little example when you looked around and you saw a face and you would say, God, you care for them. God, bless them. Lord, show yourself to them. When you go to the grocery store, you can walk down the aisles. It's a great place to practice unless you do the click list thing and they just bring you your groceries at the car. Then you can pray for the click list lady, Krista Joyner. Um, <laughs> if you're walking down the aisle and you see somebody, make eye contact and lift a prayer for them. It's not hard. With this constant attentiveness to what God is doing, do you think God's going to go, why are you doing that? Stop talking to me. 
He's going to be blessed. You're giving him this attention. You're practicing his presence. And he might press something a lot more than that on you. Let's be obedient. Tim Odom, who's playing drums here today, he had a brace on his wrist for like months. And um, he plays drums for me, so I'm concerned. Like, what's happening? And one day he shows up without it. And I said, what happened? Uh, Did you have something done or whatever? He goes, no, I was at Home Depot. And this guy came up to me and said, hey, you hurt your wrist. Can I pray for it? He said, sure. He said, hadn't hurt since. I said, that's some radical obedience and it's risky. Right? Not really. We feel like it's risky, right? What happens? You pray for them. You might encourage them. God might answer that immediately or he might need them to struggle through some stuff. You don't know, but you can ask for that. And when you see it and God is prompting you in that direction, run after it. Practice his presence. Worship in a bunch of environments. Worship by yourself in your car. Worship in your small group. Worship here and with a congregation. Worship in front of your kids. Be glorifying the Lord in whatever you do. And it's easy to just think I'm only talking about singing here. but It's really multiple things. I'm talking about praying and being with the Lord and steering in his direction. But sometimes in your car, and what a beautiful name comes on, sing it out and who cares who's watching. Come after it. Prepare for worship. You know you're going to come in here. Don't stay up till 3 a.m. because it's Saturday, right? And if you prepare yourself, be rested, be expecting that God's going to do something. And come in here ready. You knew, possibly, if you were here last week, you knew we were going to talk about the Psalms. You might go, you know what? I really want to get as much from the Lord as I can. So I'm going to read some Psalms and get ready. I'm going to see where we're going. I'm going to prep myself for what's happening. And in this corporate environment, as we said, you have to let go of your individual goals. We can, can't say, oh, that message was okay. It wasn't Tim or whatever. Okay? Um, you are looking at for what God is speaking to us as a whole. To congregate is a blessing we take far too for granted. There is many countries in the world where they are risking their life just to get together. If they worshiped by themselves, they'd probably be safe, but they understand that biblically we're supposed to come together. And so inside of that congregation, it can't be about you. It has to be what God wants to be pressing on all of us. No, not I, but we all together. And you must come in here with a holy dependency on what God wants to do in this moment. You need to be looking for his teaching, for his wooing, for his moving, for him acting in and amongst us. We just sang Spirit of Living God. This is when you move, you move us to tears, God. This is the holy dependency we're talking about. As we enter into worship, we just go, oh, that emotionally makes me, it's interesting. I get kind of moved by that or that makes me cry. I want to engage with the Father. We must see that Jesus is our present help, that he is here. The Holy Spirit wanting to teach us, wanting to help us wanting to be part of our lives. And in worship, we interact with him in a very unique way. We also need to absorb distractions with gratitude. This is a hard one for me. Um, First service, I had like a phone rang 
and I just like, huh? You know, I just started looking at it, whatever. But to absorb distraction from attitude or with gratitude means, you know, you hear a kid cry, you thank the Lord for that, the breath in that child's lungs. And you, you steer your affection towards that child for a moment and right back to the Lord. I have found in my own disciplines towards the Lord, it's not that I react the right way immediately. It's that I've learned to check it quicker. And so as I go, some, I lived with fit at church for a long time, and it was like in a gym, and the floor was covered with something, but it was still a wood floor. And this one girl who sat in the front, every time the message was about 10 minutes in, she would stand up and walk around, and she wore like big heeled shoes, and it was like, click, click. Click, click, walking all the way around and just the guy talking. And it was so difficult to just focus your mind. But if you absorb that and say, God, bless her. She doesn't even know that this is distracting God. Refocus my attention. Absorb that with gratitude. And lastly, to worship, you don't have to feel like it. It's a sacrifice of praise. Right? People often say, like, I love to worship. I get that. Okay, I'm a worship guy. I love leading worship. But there are times if you're honest, you're tired, and your mind is distracted, do it anyway. Come to the Lord and say, God, I just don't feel like it today. (laughs) But I know you're worthy. I know that you've shown yourself faithful to me over and over again. And I know you deserve my worship. God, fix my attitude or let me struggle through this. But either way, you are worthy of the praise that I have to offer. And it is said that worship is the only thing you can give God that he doesn't already have. This is a statement into free will, right? All of the earth is his. You are his, but you choose to give him your affection. You choose to give him your praise, to sacrifice the authority over your life before him. And when we read these Psalms, you have to be challenged by the words of these people who are trying to figure this out. And it's a fight. Let's struggle well. Let's be a people of prayer. Let's commit to praying for each other, especially when we're in here, but when we're not. But you don't have to know somebody's name in here for you to lift them up. Let it be a part of the game you play on Sunday morning. That you are, I'm going to just pour everything I got over there, three aisles over. See how God changes us as a community and individually. Lift your struggles to him. Press into him. Worship at a new level of surrender. And the Lord will be faithful to respond.